And now, a Breakthrough Basketball original podcast, The Jim Huber Show. After basketball, his dream is to become a rodeo clown. Jim Huber. Hey, everybody. Oh, it's hard work being this good. I was like, ow. (laughs) (laughs) He sounded like a a big choo-choo train. We join the Jim Huber Show, already in progress. I did that with not having any type of medication. <laughs> Chris Oliver is our guest today on the uh, big Jim Huber podcast, and Chris is a coach uh, with Breakthrough Basketball and at the University of Windsor, uh, Windsor University up in Canada. And uh, are, are you back from Europe? Is that where you are, Chris? I'm back from Europe. I am. Uh, I just completed last week a uh, seven-month sabbatical uh, where I traveled uh, around the world with my family and I can tell you it's great to be back in North America. I love my travels but uh, I'm happy to be home as well. So being over in Europe, did you, uh, were you able to watch practices or uh, kind of visit with coaches over in that area? The wonderful thing about uh, traveling is that, uh, you know, and certainly the coaching fraternity is, uh, you know, if you want to, there's so many people that are open to letting you be able to, uh, you know, attend their practices or, you know, e- even give you game tickets so um as i traveled i started my travels in the united states and uh, my family and i we drove out to uh, california we lived there for three months and i attended uh, i think it was 25 uh, division one or nba practices and then uh from there we traveled to uh, australia and new zealand and watched some more basketball there and then into uh, hong kong where i spent some time with some basketball people there and then uh you know we traveled to europe and europe was certainly you know, the best experience for me. You know, they do it a little bit differently, so I know I was going to get challenged to be able to uh, see some different ways of approaching the game. And, uh, you know, I spent some time with some some top-level clubs from Barcelona to Real Madrid to, uh, you know, some of the, the lesser clubs where, you know, development of players is more important because they can't just go out and buy players. So it gave me a really, really broad spectrum on, uh, you know, basketball uh, as a coach. So what were some of the best things you picked up being over in Europe and talking about kind of player development, um, some things you would take back with you coming to, to Canada working with some of your own players? Well, you know, some of it is uh, confirming a little bit uh, about how I've been approaching the game probably over the last five, six years. And, uh, you know, it, it, and I don't want any of this to ever come across as me saying that uh, they do it better or we do it worse or vice versa because I think, you know, again, there's so many different ways to be able to approach coaching and be able to develop players to the level we want and teams to the level we want. But um, I think the European teams uh, more fit with my philosophy. They they seem to let their kids play with more freedom from a young age. And, you know, one of the biggest takeaways is that, uh, you know, players that probably weren't capable uh, of being successful in throwing one-hand passes were being encouraged to throw one-hand passes from a really young age. And I saw that in uh, a number of the clubs in terms of their youth development, uh, you know, 8-year-old, 9-year-olds on up to 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. Uh, boys and girls were, you know, constantly encouraged to throw one-hand passes. And, uh, you know, I think that is a little bit foreign to some coaches who, uh, you know, are, are very much into fundamentals of two hands, two hands, two hands. And, uh, you know, in talking to the coaches, one of the reasons they do it is because uh, they want to develop all-around ball skills and it forces them at a young age. And we always talk about using your weak hand when dribbling, but, uh, you know, there's different ways to be able to develop your comfort with your weak hand. And One of their big philosophies, obviously, uh, you know, to be able to develop your weak hand while dribbling, but uh, the other part of it is they just want their players to be able to play free. A lot of that probably relates to the fact that they know often that when they're competing against the best basketball teams in the world, they're American. 
and that they have to be able to use all of their skills to be able to compete uh, against those American players who are obviously not just skilled, but, uh, you, you know, usually talented athletically as well. So, you know, that's the best explanation behind why they do that. But uh, that was one of the things that stood out. So on that too, Chris, is you're going to have coaches out there that right now may, might be listening and saying, one-hand pass, you know, ball security, you know, having maybe a guide hand on the ball when you're throwing it. Well, if we're talking about development, then I think one of the best ways to de- for kids to develop is to develop in a an environment where mistakes are encouraged and mistakes are necessary, you know, for skill development. And, uh, you know, I think we're so focused on outcome, outcome rather than process. The overriding philosophy of what I saw in a lot of practices in Europe, and, and to be honest, in some of the best practices in the U.S. too, was that a lot of the players had freedom to be able to do something other than what I know the coach probably thought was the only way or the, the way that they wanted them to do things. And uh, I think it's more of an overriding philosophy of how players play uh, in Europe and a lot of the developmental systems and certainly in a lot of the uh, pro teams is they, develop, is they develop this creativity and they're allowed to use that, developed, uh, use that creativity in terms of how they play. So, you know, advantage, disadvantage, I mean, we certainly know. Sometimes you have to deal with some mistakes. Sometimes you have to develop, deal with some turnovers. And sometimes you have to accept that. But... Uh, you know, I know within our teams, ultimately, uh, the advantage is the advantage ultimately outweighs that because players develop, um, you know, more possibilities to be able to take advantage of situations that uh, you know a structured situation might not give them. You always hear the stereotype that Europe European kids can outshoot American kids. Did you find that true in your travels? You've done camps all over the world. Are they outshooting us over there as a whole? Yeah, well, I think they do more specific skill development. If you look at you know, even within from the pro teams to the uh, the youth development teams, they just spend a lot more time on skills within a practice. Whereas I think a lot of the the practices that I've observed, certainly you know, as a coach recruiting high school players or you know through my travels in the U.S. on my sabbatical, I just saw a lot more uh, drill based, uh, a lot more team oriented practices where the focus was on was on a system. And that players, you know, within the practice were developing the skills to be able to play this system uh, as opposed to be able to play what I refer to and many coaches obviously seems to be a really good buzzword going around, but small-sided games where most of the practices that I saw within Europe when they did get to a team setting seemed to be a lot of three-on-three, four-on-four, five-on-five, you know, small-sided game situations where the three-on-three broke down a situation or, you know, just, again, it was just a three-on-three where they were allowed to play. Um, and you could see the application of some of those skills being allowed in those situations where it wasn't structured, but it was, you know, given a situation where they were allowed to to play and make decisions on their own. Well, that's one thing let's transition into. You're big into BDT, basketball decision training, and you talk a lot about block practices versus random practices and variables. So let's let's get into your philosophy on that. Kind of explain to people what BDT is and uh, how you relate that into your practices. Well, basketball decision training is something that's evolved for me from you know research done from people far smarter than me, and uh, you know I, it's basically research uh, Joan Vickers pioneered. Uh, I think about twenty five years ago. I initially read the concept, but uh, you know it, it's not a new thing. It's not a new concept. It's this concept of Block practice is essentially the repetition of something over and over again with no, no change 
in how it's executed. Uh, you know, for example, someone goes and shoots 10 shots in a row from the elbow uh, with a passer. Well, random practice would say that we're more closely simulating the game or the competition where you don't shoot the same shot over and over again. You shoot a different shot each time on each repetition. So it would be instead of having the player shoot at the elbow 10 times in a row, they'd, you know, they'd shoot at the elbow, they'd go, they could relocate, shoot somewhere else, or you could create some different type of variable that could happen within a game uh, in between each repetition as well, where you know, maybe they have to run, touch the floor, play defense, or come back. or you know, Literally, there's thousands of possibilities to make something more random or variable. The basketball decision training part is me as a coach trying to bring this philosophy of a game's approach to coaching. The game's approach to coaching is basically that uh, we want our players to practice by playing the game. A traditional skills-based approach to coaching basketball would be that we teach the skill, then they learn the tactics, and then they play the game. Whereas a game's approach would be that we're going to play the game right away. And then from there, we're going to decide what tactics we need to really teach and then what skills we need to teach. Um, and it's a, just a, you know, a little bit different approach, but since that's how I was practicing with my team, I wanted to come up with an idea about how we could train individually uh, as a team uh, in a more game way or game application. And basketball decision training is basically us training the mind, us training the decision. Basketball decision training for me is individual player development, and the game's approach is team development. <clears throat> the team development, I know that you kind of get into whether it's a, you know, three and three, four and four, uh, five and five situation. You might do something where they're setting ball screens maybe on the, the side to initiate into an offense, so they have to defend that. And then after that, then they just play, and you might have them make trips up and down the floor in transition. Absolutely. No, that's, a, it's, that's an example for sure of basically a, a small-sided game, us creating a situation for our players to work on, and then from there allowing them to be able to play multiple trips of the floor, which is what happens in a game situation. And, you know, that would contrast the example of us going and playing, okay, we're going to start our half-court trip uh, from the top of the key, the coach is going to hand them the ball, and we're going to play five on five in the half court, and then the trip ends or the repetition ends. And again, I don't want anyone to ever think that what I'm saying is that we roll out the balls and our players pr play in practice. We have very specific uh, and very known by our players coaching interventions where, you know, when we do coach this way, we do stop it. We stop it quite frequently, especially early in the year. And, uh, you know, we use different types of interventions and different types of methods to be able to get our players to be able to uh, obviously improve or think about the decisions they made. If, if they screw up how they defended the ball screen or we didn't make a good decision on offense, um, you know, in, in the ball screen, then I would stop it and, uh, you know, we'd either ask them to recreate it or we'd ask a question or in some cases we'd demonstrate, which, again, are all traditional ways of teaching. So we're not removing that aspect from it. We're just doing it from the context of the game, you know, in a four-on-four, five-on-five, three-on-three situation where there's offense and defense. And you're really and quick You're really quick in doing that too, Chris. I mean, you don't make it long-winded. What I've seen some on your videos, you're really quick in your interactions. Uh, explaining what needs to be done, the corrections, and moving on. 
I'm very conscious of their time on task in a practice, that making sure that uh, our players learn by physically practicing rather than listening to me. And uh, I'll tell you, I mean, some of the bad practices I saw, you know, throughout the world had mostly to do with the coach speaking for their benefit rather than the player's benefit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll give you an example. I saw a, you know, you know, what might be a great drill. I have no idea, but it was a drill set up and it was basically going to end up being, it was one-on-one to two-on-two type of situation. And it was in the half court, but the whole team was involved in this drill on one end of the floor where it could have been divided up into two ends, could have been divided up to multiple hoops or whatever it is. But my observation in watching is that I actually timed the time on task of one of the players. And essentially what that means is I looked at one player and I had a stopwatch on my phone and I let the stopwatch run when he was active on offense or defense. And in a 10-minute drill, he was active for 13.06 seconds. <laughs> and that was basically he had one offensive rep, and he had about a half of a defensive rep. And the rest of the time, the coach was either stopping it to speak or making players run because they screwed up. And while players ran, everyone watched. So it wasn't a case of, you know, any type of flow or any type of consistency. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I wish I could have asked the coach afterwards if he thought he got something done in that drill. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, that is something that I am, uh, you know, almost paranoid about never, never duplicating within a practice. So that's why, yes, I do want practice interventions to be as quick as possible but also as, as engaging as possible. So the example, if, hey, if I want to make a player run, I'm going to take them out of the drill so they can mm-hmm. run on their own, you know, off and, uh, you know, and not slow down the practice. Exactly. Or even that for questioning, I can take them off and have a conversation with them rather than slowing down the drill. Who, who wowed you in these practices? Who did you see an individual coach that you went, wow, holy cow, and what was different about that person that made that – unique the coaches that wowed me did a really good job of keeping the flow of practice you could tell their players and it's all those things you could tell their players were engaged that they gave eye contact uh there was a flow to the practice uh there was an intensity to practice and there was a competition within practice and uh you know the best practices i can i can certainly talk about uh one of them which is i got to watch university of arizona practice and and watch Coach Miller work there. And, uh, you know, his, the characteristics of his practice, first of all, the detail that was in his practice plan uh, was, was very detailed. And I think as we, you know, assume sometimes that as you coach for a long time that, uh, you know, you, do, you need to do less and less preparation, but uh, that certainly didn't show through in terms of his practice plan. And then from there, it was essentially a whole practice of small-sided games. And they, he put them in different situations where they play three on three, four on four, five on five, sometimes half court, sometimes full court, and where players played. But within that, he would constantly stop when necessary to be able to coach the players. And you could tell they were getting coached. And again, the opposite is that when you watch a practice and you see a coach do a drill, again, I don't know if it's a good drill, bad drill, but you watch it, and at no point in the drill was it ever stopped or was any feedback ever given to players? And for me, that's, again, you're just doing repetitions, and that might be, for me, you're just doing a warm-up. You know, without, uh, without any type of intervention, there's very little 
coaching that obviously takes place. And sometimes it's player-to-player intervention, sometimes it's coach-to-player, and you know, sometimes it's questioning or sometimes it's telling, but there's certainly always those interventions. And you saw that with Coach Miller's practices. But, um, you know, I saw some bad ones too, and I think that doesn't surprise people. But, uh, you know, sometimes bad is more of a, you know, related to your personal philosophy than it is, you know, and that's just as important, I think, for a coach. And that's why I'd encourage a coach to look at some of my stuff. Even if you end up not liking it, it will challenge your thinking and stimulate your thinking about what you do. And, uh, you know, that's what I do enjoy about watching practices. I know you're big into asking questions. You might talk to individuals why questions are important in, in getting dialogue from your players. Well, the only way that I know if a player is thinking is if they're talking. And I know coaches, you know, we all want our players to communicate on defense. We all want them to communicate, obviously, as much as possible. You know, let's be honest, that's one of the most difficult things to do as a coach. Forget about trying to break down, you know, a 2-3 zone. It's, it's getting players to talk. And, uh, you know, part of the culture of our program is that I'm going to get our players to talk as much as possible by asking them very specific and direct questions. And that's one of those other things is that sometimes as coaches, we generalize our questions. We get into coach speak where we'll ask a question, hey, what were we doing here? And that's a general question, you know, where I know from communicating to players and talking to players and talking to different coaches that if, for example, I give my team some feedback, hey, listen, we're doing a terrible job defending the ball screen. What I know is that none of the players on my team think I'm talking about them. They all think I'm talking about someone else on our team because it's very general. So what I've learned is that it's really important that if you're going to ask questions, I'm going to be very specific, and I'm going to say, hey, listen, Jim. It would be Troy, actually. What could we have- <laughs> It'd be, yeah, Chris, what- let's get this right. I, I'll guard. If you bring me up there, yeah, I'll I, shut anybody down. I okay. only played offense. <laughs> okay, so, so let's go on yeah. to Troy. Okay, well, I'll ask you an offensive question and say, hey, Jim, what was your thought process in coming off the ball screen and making that pass? And, and often, again, for me, it's like there's not necessarily a right answer there, mm-hmm. but I want you to have an answer and I want you to have a thought process, especially early in the year, because I know then that you're thinking the game a little bit more than you're just playing the game. And uh, I think ultimately that leads to better decision-making, and that combines with the basketball decision training stuff, where, which we do where we try and get a player to be able to, again, not repeat a shot over and over again, but each time they catch the ball, they make – they have to make a decision about whether to shoot, drive, or pass the ball. Do you think, though, though on no that, one. Coach, that coaches really kind of have to be comfortable in their own skin and who they are? If you ask questions, just like in a classroom, you have to be comfortable with silence. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you're going to get some silence initially, and you know they say that you know that's an important part of asking a question is giving people like a three-second pause delay for them to be able to think. But you know I find myself even doing that sometimes where you're just like you're uncomfortable – that they're silent, so you answer it. And uh, you're absolutely right. that the, it, t- it takes a certain confidence and comfortability from the coach. But I think at all levels, you'll get rewarded um, if, if you start to engage your players a little bit more. And as I said, the only way that I know that they're thinking is if I'm asking them a question and they answer it. It doesn't have to answer it right even. And that's the other thing is that if, if I'm creating an environment where mistakes are okay physically because I want them to take chances and take risks, then I'm okay with some mistakes occasionally, physically. I have to be the same way if I ask questions. I have to be okay with the fact that they're going to be wrong sometimes. And I'll tell you the other little hint is that you have to be okay that your veterans are going to try and save your rookies. They're going to try and answer the questions for them. 
or that really keen kid is always going to try and answer the questions. And that's where I think you got to be very specific. And I tell this story, but the best class and probably the most learning I ever did in a classroom is when I had a teacher who did not wait for someone to put up their hand and answer the question. She would just call out your name, and you'd, she'd say, Chris, what's the answer? And you were on the spot every minute. And I try and bring that context a little bit to our practices as well, where our players are responsible for their learning. Now, do you do you do also do that in games during timeouts, uh, halftime, like ask them questions, what do they see, what's going on, any adjustments that we can make? Do you ask them that? I, I do, but I don't want to give you the impression that that is, that is always the case. I mean, certainly, and, and that is the challenge in the game, in a game like basketball is that it's, it's so fast moving at times that, uh, you know, ultimately you, you, there's still that place for the coach that you've got to take charge and you've got to be the leader and you've got to make the decision. And not every decision is empowered to our players in any way, but there are definitely times where I'll ask our players, Hey, listen, uh, you know, what do you guys think right now would be a be- the best way to defend a ball screen? You know, we've worked on, four different ways to defend a ball screen and one of them is not working, then, you know, there's a way to be able to get them more engaged in how they're defending and that's to empower them to, to think that they made the decision or that they actually did make the decision. And, uh, you know, I think that's another important part of leadership is making, making it seem like their idea. And that's another reason to kind of use questions is that you can kind of guide people into thinking that they made, they made the decision or they came up with the idea and then they tend to be more engaged in, or, you know, involved in the outcome ultimately. And uh, that's part of this process as well that uh, we try and get to. What did you make of the uh, the Northern Iowa thing in the 44 seconds, watching that as a coach? What do you what do you take away from that? What happened? Yeah, I, I guess I kind of look at it and say, what can we take away? I mean, like obviously the importance of special situations, the importance of being able to execute at the end of the game, the importance of being able to handle pressure, but – you know, it's it it's such a bizarre outlier that whole scenario, that I, I think if you put you know Northern Iowa in that situation a hundred times, ninety nine of them that doesn't happen. I don't know if I take away as much from that as much as I take away from the comeback, because I think that's something that you can always relate back to your players is that you know we're going to play to the end and you know we're going to see what's going to happen and anything can happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's the beauty of the NCAA tournament is that. Uh, some of these endings and some of these outcomes always give give hope to the possibility uh, to any type of team, any type of situation, and uh, you know it, it's pretty incredible that 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 fact could happen at that level. And I guess that's my other takeaway to be able to you know anytime I think an NBA player, an NBA team, or an NCAA team shows some fallibility like that, that you can relate that back to your players and say, listen, I mean this is why we practice the way we do, this is why we train the way we do. You know, to be able to eliminate the possibility of these things happening. Well, it's hard too. I mean, that's that's high stakes. The pressure, people watching, what's going on. I mean, sometimes yeah, it is. Your mind can take over in a negative way, and it can snowball, which is uh, well. I I was way. watching, and the guy says, "Okay, well, that guy hurt his knee. That's their inbounder." And the announcer, there's forty some seconds left. I'm like, "Oh, right, that's going to make a difference." I tune out to the other game, and then I see the ticker, and it's two points. 40 seconds later, that guy went out, and the other guy came in, and, and the car was rushing at him, and he just – yeah, you felt so bad for the guy. And you've been in games, Coach. You know how it is. When it starts to snowball – We're way past big speech time. Huh? When momentum hits and it goes against you, it is sometimes hard to slow it down and stop it. Ah, 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 
But going back to practice, Coach, you know, you mentioned about having it flow. So say you have situations where you want to hold somebody accountable to discipline them but keep the flow of the practice going. Well, I mean, the biggest thing about uh, keeping people accountable, which is the hardest thing, I'll be honest. It's the hardest thing, uh, I think, for young coaches, for new coaches, for coaches at a lot of levels, is that uh, you have to be honest. I mean, and you have to be specific. And you have to tell people. It's not just a case of saying, hey, listen, we're not working hard. You know, because, again, that's just coach speak. That doesn't really give your players any information. You have to say, listen, we're not working hard, you know, because we're not running the wings hard on offense. Uh, We're not blocking out on the defensive boards. And give them very specific things that prove that they're not working hard. And that's the first thing about being holding people accountable is, uh, you know, it's hard. And we, we obviously try and create the condition and the culture early in the year, especially with our new players, that they understand that sometimes, yes, the feedback is going to be very specific to them. But it's, it's not meant to be demeaning. It's not meant to be, you know, embarrass you. It's meant to help you improve and to help you get better. And then in the absence of feedback, you're not going to get better. And I think that needs to be explained to kids because I think sometimes we're, you know, we have a hard time coaching kids. I teach an art and science of coaching class uh, at the University of Windsor to third and fourth year students. And, uh, you know, one of the first things I tell them is that they're all too soft to coach successfully. And I don't mean that in the sense that you got to be, you know, you got to be mean to your players or to your athletes. I say that in the sense that you got to be willing to stop it and tell someone when they're not doing it right but also tell them how they can do it right. Now, sometimes that'll happen within the flow of practice when I stop it. I say, stop it, okay, I'll focus. Jim, this is what we got to do better, and then we keep going. Or sometimes if it involves a further conversation, then we pull you out, we sub you out, and we have the conversation off with me or an assistant. Um, But in some cases, we'll have that whole conversation in front of the team, depending on, again, if it's something that the whole team needs to be a part of in terms of nobody's doing it well my general rule is this if one player is screwing it up then i'm going to coach that one player and if more than one player is screwing it up then i'm going to coach the whole team but it may still be through you all right going back to what you oh. said too teaching that class is you know young coaches being soft is i think a lot of young coaches to me they want to be liked and i think it goes back to being respected for what you do and sometimes like you said you have to say things that some of your players are not going to like and they might not like you for saying that, but it's the truth. And the truth sometimes has to be spoken. I think that's sometimes hard for individuals that are in coaching to do that. But I think that's something once they can get through that and understand learning to earn that respect for what you do, I think that's a key in having success as well. I, I totally agree. And, and again, like I want our players to have fun. But I, I don't think in, in any sense are we saying that fun in basketball is meant to be frivolous. Like they're not, we're not talking about them playing duck, duck, goose and doing that. We're talking about, you know, fun for my players is, you know, being challenged mm-hmm. and growing as a player. And I think that, again, that applies to all levels that I've coached at. Even at a, a breakthrough basketball camp is, like, I know you're probably the same. You have a hard time with that kid that really isn't there to get better. And that, you know, I, I'm willing to challenge a kid to be able to say, listen, I mean, you, you came to this camp, someone's paying for this opportunity for you or you're paying for this opportunity for you. And it's my responsibility as a coach to challenge you to help you grow. 
You know, we talked to uh, Don Kelbick on the last podcast, another breakthrough coach, and he's really big on the power of immediacy, catching it immediately. He wants you to do what you do best first, be ready to shoot every time you catch the ball, um, and then counter if it's taken away. How does zero seconds training kind of – how is it similar? How is it different from Don's philosophy? It, it, it's amazing to me, and I, I mean, I feel grateful, obviously, to be getting this opportunity to be able to work with breakthrough and uh, travel the country and uh, – you know, I hear so many great things about Don and about Jim and, you know, the teaching that uh, both of you do. And uh, I guess it's one of my frustrations that I haven't had a chance to be able to observe either of you kind of in terms of how you teach and how you do things. But uh, I certainly have heard enough about uh, some of the concepts that they, they, they both try and convey to their athletes that, uh, that I know there's a lot of similarities, but we just basically say it differently. Zero seconds for me is, is that, that as soon as you catch it, if you're open, shoot it. If the defender is arm length away, drive them. And if there's a better opportunity for you know someone else, then you make the extra pass. But I'll be honest, when I'm in a camp setting and I'm in an individual development setting, I do not want a player to think about pass. I think team setting is when we encourage pass, and the offseason is about a little bit more selfishness in terms of a player's development because like, I see players, and I know Coach Huber does too, when you get to, to summer camps that – a player will suddenly come to summer camp and all they do, you know, in any competitive situation is pass. Mm-hmm. And that is not the fun of the game and that's not the fun of a player's development. So we really do encourage them to be able to focus on shoot or drive in our individual setting. But when it comes to team setting, obviously we define it a little bit more specifically to a player. And obviously at a youth level, you might modify that because some players can't shoot. So you focus them more on the ability to be able to attack a closeout and drive on the catch. But we zero seconds is no predetermined movement and no pause on the catch and uh you know because of that anytime you have an opportunity within our team setting uh to be able to attack someone as a matchup then we want you to attack and if you attack your goal is to score and if you can't score it's because you drew help and if you draw help then obviously you become a passer you know one of the hard things sometimes watching the ncaa games and we play 24 seconds, and obviously traveling the world, everyone else in the world plays 24 seconds on the shot clock. But there's so many actions before actions. And I love action before action, but I don't like action before action before action before action before action. Mm-hmm. And you see so many false motions and false actions sometimes that some of these NCAA teams are always playing late in the shot clock. Yeah. And I know they have players that can attack right away and create a matchup or create an advantage. And uh you know, sometimes I think as coaches we have to be more conscious of letting our players, again, that comes back to freedom, but letting them to be able to attack immediately. When you watch those NCAA games, like you said, they'll be holding the ball, just dribbling, the shot clock will go down, and then all of a sudden they'll run maybe a little ball screen up top, be taken away, and they'll take some bad shot. But as you mentioned, like starting early, attacking, getting in your stuff, and uh, you know, taking advantage of, of more time you have on the clock. But one thing I'd like to ask you is we talked about basketball decision training in practice. Okay, and Troy just mentioned you talked about zero seconds. So let's talk about BDT in individual skill work. So BDT is, is essentially that, that you, a cue is given to the, uh, the offensive player, and the offensive player makes a decision based on that cue. And the idea of making it random is this concept of making every repetition for a player unique. So... In a BDT individual situation, for example, you know, Coach Huber, you're the shooter, and I'm the coach or the passer uh, underneath. It can be anyone. 
but I pass you the ball. If my hands are out in front of you when I pass you the ball, then you pass it back to me. On every pass back to me, uh, hopefully we've initiated, you know, once we get past that initial learning phase, you're relocating, you're moving, I pass it to you. If I step towards you, you're driving. You know, if you drive and my hands are down, then obviously you're going to shoot it, whether it's a pull-up or your score at the rim, you know, whatever you want to define it as. But, for example, if I make you drive and then I relocate as the passer and put out my hands, what do you have to do? Kick. You have to kick. So now we're trying to make it a little bit more game-like. And the initial part is pretty basic in terms of just understanding the initial signals, but the fun of it is is when you can get into those situations. Um, and I'll tell you one of, the, one of the things that I like about it is it, it has increased our players' satisfaction, athlete satisfaction, in their training. Because instead of just being a mindless passer underneath, you're an active participant not only in your learning, but in your teammates' learning. So it becomes more of a symbiotic relationship in that sense that they work together to be able to help each other develop. You know, we can put them in a situation where now they're coming off a ball screen. I set the ball screen for you, Coach Huber. Uh, I roll, and now it's the same decisions. You're reading me. Uh, my hand's down. You shoot it. If my hands are up, you pass it. If you pass it to me, then you relocate. I kick it to you. Maybe I follow towards you, you know, initiate the dribble handoff or some type of other action. And there's so many possibilities. And the beautiful thing about sharing it is coaches have come back to me with great ideas. So, you know, I hope there'll be some coaches in the audience that uh, look at some of this stuff and say, hey, this, this fits in this way and uh, share it with the rest of us. Chris, you've done a great job with basketballimmersion.com. The, the website's beautiful, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of great stuff on yeah. it. I love the mixed drills where you're going backwards between the legs, boom, 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 and then they're working on stabbing those feet and shooting in zero seconds, you know, as quickly as possible and, and working on ball pickup skills, ball handling, shooting all at once and moving. Uh, I, I just love what you've done. Well, I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it's good. I and mean, what you said there is what I would hope a coach would take away from it, and that's the fact that drills are mixed. And, again, that's coming back to that thing that we've talked about already, which is trying to get our players to be able to practice within the context of the game. Instead of just training ball handling in isolation, we want our players to be able to train ball handling within the context of, well, at some point they're going to have to pick it up and shoot it or they're going to have to pass it, or they're going to have to do something that's game-like and not just, again, working on all your dribble moves, you know, in space. And, uh, you know, for me, it's been so valuable. Uh, One, I've connected with so many coaches, for example, like you two right now, where I'm able to talk and stimulate kind of my thinking even more about what I do. Uh, And then, two, it's allowed me to be able to share, you know, this, you know, all these ideas that have been in my head. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that I, I went through some education, uh, that that kind of stimulated my thinking, but my frustration with my education was always it was I was just like, how do I make this practical? You know, it's like anyone thinking about calculus. Sometimes you're taking calculus when you're in high school, and you're going, well, I'm not going to use any of this, or I have no idea how I'm going to use any <laughs> that's of this. That's why I didn't take so, it. <laughs> <laughs> for for basketball, that's kind of what I wanted to create as a resource where you know a coach could look there and it's kind of a you know uh, there's there's no BS to it. This is actually what we do. And I'm willing to share exactly what we do. And we have practice footage. We have game footage. And, you know, it's a little unique this year because I wasn't actually coaching. But this year when I go back to coaching, I'm, I'm going to share it all and, uh, you know, give, give complete access to anyone that wants to be able to see what we do and, uh, you know, and share it. Because, uh, again, I think 
you know, the, the value for me is to see this game grow and continue to develop and people to think a little bit differently about how they do things. And, you know, whether you like my ideas or not, at least stimulated your way of thinking and hopefully made you a better coach. We need people to understand, well. though. We need people to understand this, that, that your name is Coach Chris Music Man Oliver. This is the music man. <laughs> you play the music at camps. How does the music rhythm, how does it relate into ball handling you know, footwork and shots and things like that, and how do you teach it? Uh, all this comes from an Italian coach called Massimo Antonelli. And he, he literally, if you look up his website, it's Music Basket, and it's Music Basketball. But he does everything specifically to the rhythm of a song, where he can pick a song, say it's a Rihanna song, and then he, he has a DJ machine, and he'll change the RPMs of the song or the beats of the song, and then you have to keep up to those beats. I'm not. I'm not that complex. I, I told Jim a long time ago. I I, yeah, I told him. I said, listen, listen. It's like dancing. Yeah. Dribbling a basketball <laughs> is like dancing. Yeah. How could I teach a kid to dance without music? Yeah, you did. You How, did say that. And the ball. It's the same thing. It's a dance with the ball. It's literally when you're skating. Right. It's tricky. Yeah. Run DMC and Jim would go viral. It'd be two million <laughs> views. I'm telling you, it would be unreal. So I took a lot of those ideas. I actually went over to Italy about five years ago and spent some time and immersed with him a little bit, learned some of his techniques. It wasn't practical for me to have a DJ system. It wasn't practical for me to have my players specifically attuned to a specific song every time. So instead, what we try and do is we try and use claps to simulate the beats. So now if I'm teaching someone how to do a, a bounce change, which is simply I come down the floor, I take a hard stab dribble before I change the change could be a crossover, could be between the legs, behind the back, whatever it may be. But I would simply tell my players that, okay, here's your rhythm. That Now they know the rhythm. And then once they get good with that rhythm, I say, okay, so I want to challenge you more because my job as a coach is to create optimal challenge. And once you get good with, now I want to be able to get you to go faster. And you can relate players, or you can get players to relate to the rhythm and to be able to help themselves improve. For example, something even simpler, okay, you know, something from, okay, in, on this finishing move, it's this. Well, what does that relate to in terms of one clap? What does it relate to in terms of a stop? What sound is that? It's a two-foot stop. Now, if I want him to get it to do a two, a one-two stop, then I'm going to do so that they understand the rhythm of the stop. And it's a way to be able to communicate, I think, a little bit more specifically, a little bit more quickly, uh, what I want them to do. So I haven't seen really individuals do that as much. I have seen individuals that have put music on at practice or, you know, before maybe they're doing a little workout or whatever to create energy. And Especially like little kids, you know. Hey, put a Beatles song on and teach them a ball handling routine. A, they're <laughs> going to have fun. B, they're going to have rhythm as they're moving. It just seemed to make sense. So You brought that up because of Paul McCartney. Great minds think alike. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> No, you know, Chris, <laughs> I got to explain who the Beatles were. I got to share this with you. Okay. And this goes to the podcast listeners in the audience. This is, this is classic. So I send Jim a link two days ago that says that Ringo Starr is on his deathbed and he has uh, confessed that Paul McCartney died in 1966 and that it's been a fake Paul McCartney this whole time. And the link looked real. 
And so I sent it to like four or five guys that I thought might be suckers. Jim is the only one he calls me. Goes, oh my god, did you see Chris? I said, yes, it's unbelievable. It's on CNN. No, but it's not and on listen, CNN. No, I knew he wouldn't go check because he's got two babies at home. So I knew. So like two days running, he's he's his whole world has been destroyed. Hey, coach, all of you know it is, and you're studying things that matter. So you know, I you focus on things. You get exactly. Right. I I did after I did see it. I asked if it was real, and I did go on to CNN. I went on online. Chris, the website is wonderful. Basketballimmersion.com. It's great for coaches. It's great for players. There's all kinds of wonderful video and your your theories on there. And I really enjoy taking a look at it. I hope people will uh, subscribe. And is it growing? Things are going good with it? Things are growing for sure. And, uh, you know, I've uh, I've been very happy with it. And uh, certainly, again, traveling the world, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've gained so many more other experiences. And I've been able to film some more videos that I'm excited to be able to share with people again. You know, whether it's on the blog or in the membership site to be able to, again, get people to think a little bit about what they're doing. And uh, and yeah, I guess shouldn't say what they're doing, but also how they're doing it. And you have breakthrough camps uh, coming up, uh, don't you, in the spring, summer? and Now I get to go through a summer of traveling, obviously, throughout uh, the U.S. and Canada and, uh, you know, be able to share some of those experiences and some of those ideas. And uh, I'm very grateful for, for that and uh, for breakthrough. And, uh, you know, I look forward at some point, obviously, uh, you know, getting together with uh, you and Don no, and some of the other breakthrough coaches and, uh, you know, sharing some of these ideas and uh, stimulate our thinking even more about what we do. So that'll be a lot of fun. We'll <laughs> invite fake Paul McCartney. <laughs> we'll have him come and sing at the thing. Appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, to allow us to talk to you about the game and, and grow in the game today. Thanks, guys, and uh, really enjoyed the podcast. It's, uh, it's, it's added some much, some much needed uh, uh, intelligence to the basketball coaching world and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm really uh, glad that you started and it gave me uh, some great opportunities while I was on the road as well to be able to keep in touch with the game. So thanks for that. This is the Jim Huber Podcast. White men can jump. You mean play basketball? Will you explain to this Gladys Knight?